a question posed to a site on the internet you may be familiar with called Metafilter. Um, it's, it's fairly well known, but not super well known by the general populace. It's, it's kind of a, a, a nerdy little corner of the internet, but it's a place where um, basically people ask questions. Um, it's the kind of place where you go when there's a question that Google just isn't going to cut it for, um, where it's not just a simple answer, a simple thing that you just find, uh, a piece of data, but you need actual people that know things and that can analyze things and use some critical thinking skills, the stuff that computers aren't really all that good at. So a couple weeks ago now, um, someone posed this question to Metafilter. Let me give you the, the setup and, and what, he, uh, what this person actually wrote on the, on the site here. In my grandmother's final days battling brain cancer, she became unable to speak, and she filled dozens of index cards with random letters of the alphabet. I'm beginning to think that they are the first lines in the words of song lyrics and, and would love to know what the song was. This may be a crazy long shot, but I've seen Metafilter pull off some pretty impressive code breaking before. It goes on. Passed away in 1996 of a fast-spreading cancer. She was non-communicative her last two weeks, but in that time, she left at least 20 index cards with scribbled letters on them. My cousins and I were between 8 and 10 years old at the time and believed she was leaving us a code. We puzzled over them for a few months, trying different substitution ciphers, and didn't get anywhere. My father found one of the cards the other day, and I love puzzles, and I want to tackle the mystery again. Based on some of the repeating segments, many of the lines start with PST, many end with PAGA, and TYAGF, repeats often at the end, I'm thinking they may be song lyrics. She inserts lots of backwards commas and strange breaks at various points that could indicate stanzas. The back of the card has two numbered lines that contain the same letters. The letters with the line breaks to match the card and images of the cards are below. Here's the, uh, I don't know how well you'll be able to see them. Um, these are the two pictures of the cards that were posted. Just standard index cards, you know, looks like a, just a regular old black ballpoint pen with just a bunch of letters filling it up. Um, I can, if I'll give you, I've got a, a closer up picture of, of just the front. You know, you look at that and it's kind of hard to make heads or tails of it. It's just this, it just looks like chaos and nonsense. Just this big string of letters that, you know, clearly for years, uh, no one was able to make any sense of. But about, I'd say 15 to 20 minutes after this question was posed, someone said, was your grandmother religious at all? And they asked this because they started doing some searches on just sort of the first segments of these letters that were written on the back of the card. And as they did this search, um, they, they found someone on some other website, some forum, somewhere. Anyway, someone that had the username OFWAIH. And they thought, well, that's kind of a weird coincidence. And, and so they found out from this person who had that username what those letters meant. And when they got the answer, suddenly things started to make a little bit more sense. Because O-F-W-A-I-H stood for our Father who art in heaven. And you can read the rest of, the rest of these letters to see, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can go through the rest, and you see the rest of the Lord's Prayer is what was written twice in a row on the back of that card. And so, 
the person who originally posed the question and many, many other people started looking at the other side of that card and they started seeing a lot of things and were like, wait a minute, that, that starts to make a little more sense. The T-Y-G that showed up a lot. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is that? Thank you, God. And the, in fact, I hadn't planned to do this. I'm going to go back a couple of slides here. Um, at the very bottom of the front side of this card, I started to realize, well, wait a minute, are those last two things on the card, or the last few, few lines there, a few statements, thank you, God, for listening to my prayers and answering them. Thank you, Almighty God, for everything. Amen. Thank you, Almighty God, for everything. Amen, amen, amen. As they started going through these cards, and they got the rest of the family going in, trying to find what happened to the rest of them, they started seeing things that might have been people's initials, um, different requests, things, little pieces and bits and pieces, and they hadn't figured out everything. But they started to see enough patterns in these cards. They started to see enough that suddenly everything changed for that family. The way that they had viewed those cards, that like, they thought maybe they were song lyrics or something. They had no idea what they were. But as soon as they started to see what was really at work, it changed the story of those cards. And it really started to change the way they viewed those last couple of weeks of that woman's life, where she couldn't communicate. This was the only communication she had for those two weeks. And what was she doing? She was praying. It's amazing what a new perspective can do. When one fundamental change in the story suddenly starts to change the way you view everything else about that period of time, or maybe even the way you view an entire lifetime, one small change in perspective can change the way you see everything in the world around you. Over in 2 Corinthians, verse 5, in that portion of it, I was really actually very tempted to have probably the world's longest scripture reading this morning because we're going to get through a little of chapter 5 and jump back to chapter 4 some too, but I, uh, I restrained myself there. Um, but if we go back to, to verse 11 of chapter 5 in Second Corinthians, Paul says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope that it's also plain to your conscience. And, and he goes on to, to give, some, give me some context here to, to say that we're not just trying to commend ourselves to you. There are other teachers or other people that try to build themselves up to you. Like, we're not trying to do that. We're just saying we know what it is to fear the Lord, and so we try to persuade others. And so the, the part I love down in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. For we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I felt a little strange starting our scripture reading today there because, you know, you start with a so. You know, like, well, so, so what? Like, why? It's because Christ's love compelled them, because they have seen, they know what it is to fear the Lord, they know what it is to experience the love of God, to see and understand what God is up to. And so because of that, they regard no one from a worldly point of view. And though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We regard no one from a worldly point of view, but instead we see everything through the lens of God is reconciling the world to himself. We've seen the love of God. We've seen the work of God. We've seen that he's given us this task and that love compels us to do the same, to be his ministers of reconciliation. Because we see what God is doing, everything else that goes on in this world I was about to say looks a little different. No, looks completely different. And we see that and we understand that. And sometimes it's easy to get on an intellectual level. But then we look around at the world around us. And sometimes it's a little bit harder to actually do that practically. As we have what's so often called in the kingdom of God, the already but not yet tension. We know that what God has done has been done eternally for all time. Christ's sacrifice and what he did on the cross was the sacrifice of sacrifices. It was the one thing that will last forever. We know that what he has done will never be shaken. But we also know that things still don't seem quite right yet. We know that he's reconciling the world to himself, and we know that he's done it. We know that he is redeemed and restored, but we're also living in a world that doesn't quite feel fully restored, fully redeemed, fully reconciled. So it's easy to miss this new perspective while we live in the midst of this tension. You know, I was thinking about some Old Testament characters as going through this, sort of contrasting Joseph and Saul. You know, you have you know Saul, who in, in back in 1 Samuel thirteen, we don't really have time to get read through the, the story here, but he's you know we all know the story. He's he's waiting for Samuel to come for the sacrifice that, that's supposed to be made, and. When he looks at the world around, he knows that God is with him. He knows that God has given them victory. He knows that the man of God, Samuel, is supposed to come and offer these sacrifices. He knows that the way God has been arranging things and working has been good for Israel. But what he sees in that moment is Samuel's not here yet. The men are getting restless. Some, in fact, are seeing the size and strength of the Philistine army, and they're starting to wander off. They're starting to run and hide. And Saul gets scared and says, you know what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands because things don't look good right now. And yeah, I, I know, I know God's taking care of this, but I need, I need to do this my way now. And of course, we know that as soon as he does, of course, Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? And because of this, his family loses the kingdom. But then you have... On the other side of the equation, there's so many examples we could give, but I just love the example of, of Joseph. As he's there, his brothers have sold him into slavery. He's, you know, makes the best of that situation, and he still rises to, to a pretty high position in the household, even though he is still a slave. But then he's wrongly accused, 
and then he's thrown into prison. He sits there, rotten there for a while, and then until he he you know does some amazing things, interpreting these dreams, says, "Hey, you know, you're you're gonna go, you know, back and 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 see, you know, Pharaoh here. Let tell him about me, you know, help me get out of here." And he gets forgotten there for a while longer. He eventually makes it out, and I just this tragic, like every time something good seems to happen for Joseph. He takes another step back and things look bad again. But then we know at the end of the story, as his brothers have come to him, as Joseph has, has risen to this high position in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the one who is really being the, the savior of the world around him that's going through this famine, the one who has known that this famine was coming, who had saved up this food, these storehouses of food, so that people could have food and not perish. And his brothers have come to him, the same ones who sold him into slavery in the first place. And what does he say to him? You meant it for ill, but God was using this for good. How many times along the course of that story could he have pulled a saw? And he said, like, ah, I know God is good. I know God's with me. I know God's doing things, but this just looks really bad right now. So I'm going to make a course correction on my own. I'm going to change things up. But he didn't. He remained faithful because he had that different perspective, knowing that God is working even when it's really, really hard to see. It's hard to see God at work when your family is selling you into slavery. It's hard to see God at work when you've been wrongly accused and thrown into prison. Yet he was faithful. And he could look back on it at the end and said, Ah, you meant all this for ill. But God could make it right. On one hand, we have passages going back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. We have things like verse 6. For God said, or excuse me, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You know, darkness brings with it confusion and misunderstanding, but God has made this light shine forth. And in fact, over in, in Ephesians 5, 8 says, you know, we once were darkness, but now we are the light of the Lord. So we're to be light and part of what God's up to. We should have that clarity, that understanding of what God's really doing in this world. The things that are in line with that reconciliation that God is trying to bring about. But on the other hand, we go one verse later. <laughs> verse 7. Just remote. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always been being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. It's this really strange place we find ourselves in that we've been given this light, this knowledge, this understanding of what God is doing in the world, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this amazing gift of knowing what God is doing, but we carry it around in such imperfect and fragile vessels. And along the way, 
We're hard-pressed on every side. But we're not crushed. And he goes on, all these things, like things are still difficult. We still experience the trials and tribulations of this world, but it's different somehow. Because inside this frailty, underneath this weakness, we have God's strength. We have God's work within us. On one hand, we think, wouldn't it be great if when we became a child of God, when we entered into his kingdom, suddenly we, even though we were in the flesh, just like a switch flips and we are strong like he was strong and everything becomes easier. But I have to say, if that were to happen, we start to feel pretty good about ourselves, wouldn't we? It would be very easily to start idolizing ourselves and those around us who just seem to have it all together and everything just seems so great. But Paul says, no, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this power, this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We need to live in that tension, that already but not yet, that amazing gift of light and knowledge and clarity of what God is doing, but still weakness, sometimes dim eyesight to see what he's doing. Down in verse 16, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Because of what God is really doing, because we do have this knowledge, even though we have it so imperfectly, even though we have this power of God, and even though we exercise it so imperfectly, we don't lose heart. Because we know that all the brokenness, the trouble, the hardship that we see around us, we know that that's temporary. Because we know that ultimately God is reconciling the world to himself and there's nothing that can stop him from exercising his will. This life is filled with struggle and heartache. We all know that. And the disciple of Jesus is not exempt from that as much as we'd like to be. But we see these troubles differently. We don't lose hope. We need to watch out for the extremes, though. We don't have this fatalist acceptance and saying, oh, like, well, this world is just so broken, so messed up, everything's bad, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, no, God is redeeming, God is reconciling, good is coming. We don't need to have the extreme of this escapist theology that somehow has become so pervasive in modern Christianity, saying, like, things are really bad and everything's broken and awful right now, but, you know, but someday... All this is going to be over, and so everything's going to be great in heaven. Well, God says, no, I'm, I'm at work today. God, God isn't on vacation. God isn't waiting and saying, like, one of these days I'm going to redeem. One of these days I'm going to restore. Jesus says, you know, I'm with you always. Not I'm going to be with you again someday, but he's with us now. But we don't want to go to the extreme of some sort of prosperity gospel either, which we know is just not realistic, saying that, oh, well, God is just going to fix everything for me right now. Everything's going to be great. There's going to be no struggles, no hardships. Everything's just going to be wonderful from day to day. Every day is going to be better than next. I'm just going to be going from peak to peak. 
never having any valleys. Ask Paul what he would think about that. When so many times in his letters he has to remind his readers of the hardships that he personally has endured for the sake of the gospel. And I don't think bragging about how much he was willing to go through, but instead saying, look at what I've endured and take that as a lesson that it's worth it. Look at what I've endured and God is still with me. Look at what I've endured and it hasn't caused me to lose faith or to lose hope because God is bigger than my struggle. This is the kind of setup that Paul gives when he then makes it to chapter 5 and says, this is the ministry of reconciliation we've been given. This is the point of view that we take now. Yes, we have this treasure, but it's in jars of clay. Yes, we have God's strength, but it's playing out in our weakness. Yes, we have trouble, but it can't overcome eternal glory. Because see, everything that looks like weakness and even foolishness to the world around us from that world's perspective Paul says, no, 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 we don't regard anyone, anything from that worldly point of view anymore. It all looks different through the lens of God at work, reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. We can live in this already but not yet tension because our world looks different through these new eyes that we've been given. So we're in this tension, but admittedly, In the midst of this tension, this world, this life, it can look like a bunch of scrambled and meaningless letters. It can look like chaos. It can look like something that you could stare at for years and never make sense of it. But if we have eyes to see, if we have that right perspective and to see, oh wait, maybe God's doing something with this. Maybe there's something more sacred. Maybe there's something more holy here than it appears. We might be able to see that in all things that come our way, God's calling for us. Sometimes maybe in just a whisper. Sometimes in a shout. But He's calling and He's working and He's putting the pieces back together. Bringing into this present reality that reconciliation that He has eternally won. And even though in our weakness, a lot of times our eyes struggle to see what he's doing. A lot of times it just looks like the jumbled letters. He wants us to work with him. And that's kind of the mind-blowing thing in this for for me. And in all of this, the most amazing thing that I just want you to just let your mind be blown by for a minute is that as weak as we are and as unclearly as we see sometimes what God is doing in the world, he tells us that he is at work and he says, and I want you to do it with me. I want you to be my minister of reconciliation. I want you to carry this message despite your weakness, despite your troubles, despite your inability to really fully grasp what I'm doing right now. I still want you with me. We've been let in on the secret. We've cracked the code. We've been given this ministry. So everything that we see should take on a new meaning. Now maybe there's something in your life that's broken, something that's confusing, something that's just not right right now. Something heavy on your heart. And being that this is a room full of human beings, Odds are pretty good. 
that there's something going on right now that just looks like this mess. That just looks like this scrambled, jumbled mess that you can't make heads or tails of. But if you only hear one thing I say today, if only one thing sticks, I want you to know, and you're just going to have to trust me, that God is working to reconcile and restore. It's all over Scripture. It's His story that He's given to us. He's working to redeem and restore and reconcile even in your situation right now. Even in the mess you may find yourself in right now. Even if you can't see it right now. God's at work. Just trust Him. Hold on to Him. Let Him lead you to a place where that chaos and that confusion start to make at least a little bit more sense. Or at least let Him lead you far enough that someday you'll look back on it and say, oh wow, look what He's led me through. Look what He's stuck by me through. But for all of us, whether or not there's a burden heavy on your heart this morning or not, I do want us to ask ourselves the question, what about our story? We know what God's story is. We know God's story of reconciliation. But what's our story going to be? Is it going to be one of reconciliation or is our story going to be one of division? One story is of God. One story simply isn't. Let's go be ministers of reconciliation. Let that define who we are. What could happen if we shed every scrap of the us versus the world mentality that is so easy and natural to fall into and instead took on an us for the world mentality? Because see, it was for love of this world, the people of this creation, that Jesus came to live, die, and then live again to offer new life, to offer reconciliation, to reconcile them to himself for this world that we can feel so distant from sometimes. He came down into it and said, no, this is what I'm going to do for them. Let that be our reason for acting as well, for love of this world, for the people of this creation. As it said over in verse 14, chapter 5, let Christ's love compel us as well. Let's work in such a way that brings about that restoration and reconciliation. Because if you look around for more than a few seconds, that's about all it takes, you'll realize that there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of redeeming that needs to be done. There's a lot of reconciliation that really, really needs to happen in this world. But if you're tempted to look around and say, wow, that's a lot of work. That's hard work. That's impossible work. Let's make sure that we check our perspective and remember that it's God at work in us and that all things are possible, even the redemption of this broken, hurting world that seems beyond reconciliation, beyond redemption. God says, no, that's what I'm doing. And he invites us to do that with him today. If you need that reconciliation today, if you're not his child, if you're not part of his kingdom and you know that you need to be reconciled to God. He says to you, that's what I'm all about. That's what I want to do for you. That's why I sent my son for you. He would love to embrace you with open arms this morning as we would as his family if you want to enter into his kingdom and into his family. If you'd like to take on the name of Christ in baptism, take on his life, and take on his death and new life, 
We can do that this morning. But for all of us in the kingdom of God, let's not leave here today without remembering what God's story is about and letting that become our story as well. If there's anything that we can do as a family to help you pursue that more fully, to be that minister that God has called you to be, if there's anything that you need us to do to help you, please come and let us know while we stand, while we sing.